0: Today we will be reading from Luke 15, verses 11 through 24. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to be a a citizen of that country, who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spear, and here I am starving to death? I will set out. And go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. So they began to celebrate. Well, good morning. Last
1: week we finished our two year series in Genesis. So this summer we are doing the parables, a highlight of a number of parables of Jesus. Jesus told many parables, and he did so because it was a wonderful way to communicate truth. It was a way to communicate truth to people who had open hearts where it could penetrate not just their heads, but their hearts as well. But it was also a way to communicate truth in a way that if hearts were hardened, it would expose the hardness of heart because they would not understand. Stories are a powerful way to penetrate truth and allow it to go deep into our hearts. Well, today I'm beginning a two-week series on what you just heard, which is, The parable of what's commonly called the prodigal son. Perhaps the best known and best loved of all of Jesus' parables. Like other teachers, I prefer to call it the parable of the two lost sons. Because as Jesus begins, he says a man had two sons. And the parable is really about both. And he has two parts. So today we'll be looking at the younger son. Next week we will look at the older son. Both of these sons are lost. Both of these sons do not know their father well. Both of these sons need God's grace. Both of these sons are sinners. I like the way Daryl Johnson put it. He says there's two kinds of sinners in the world. One is the rule breakers and another are the rule keepers. And both are sinners. And this parable highlights both. All of us sin some in both of those ways, actually. But we tend towards one particular way of sinning or the other. But ultimately what that tells us is that this parable is really about every one of us. We are reflected in these two sons. But even more so, this is a parable about God and who he is prodigal, the word prodigal means to be extravagantly wasteful. And the younger son certainly was extravagantly wasteful. But it's Tim Keller who wrote a book about the parable called The Prodigal God, which many of our women are reading for book club this summer. Uh, As we see in this parable, it's really God who is most extravagantly wasteful. He is a prodigal God. As I said, it's clear in in this parable that each of the sons do not know the Father well. But the parable, I think, teaches us that the key to life, the key to becoming who we are meant to be is knowing Him well. And the Father knows that. To know Him not as we assume Him to be, but as He truly is. So my prayer for you and for me as we go through this study is that each of us would get to know our Father for true, who he truly is and not who we assume him to be. So let's begin with a prayer and then we'll dig in. Lord, I thank you for who you are, but we admit that we don't see you clearly. We make assumptions about you. You, We think you are certain way and yet you are not. And so we pray that this parable would be used of you to open our eyes by the power of your spirit to who you really are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're looking at the younger son. But as a preface, this background, if you really want to understand this parable, you need to understand the cultural background. We live in a very different culture than this parable was told, and we live in a very different culture than much of the world today. Our culture in America is individualistic. We value tolerance. You never put pressure on anybody else, except maybe a little guilt here and there, but basically that's what drives our culture is this individualism and tolerance. But much of the world today and the biblical culture is very different. It is honor-based and shame-based. Think about what you've heard about when a Muslim becomes a Christian and how they're kicked out of the family, excluded from the community, sometimes even put to death for their faith. Why is that? It's because... They have dishonored the whole family and the entire village, the entire Muslim community. They have brought shame on the community from their eyes. You see, it's an honor-based, a shame-based culture. When the president of Toyota has talked about the problems that the car company has had, he has described it in a way of taking it very personally and being shamed personally. Why is that? Because the Japanese culture is an honor, shame-based culture. Everybody in that company who is from the East feels shamed by the problems Toyota has had. Jeannie and I experienced this for ourselves in a really powerful, personal way when, in 1986, we went to visit some Italian relatives of hers. And this one day, we went up to this little village way up in the mountains. Now, there were probably six different families that were related to us. We went to the first home. And by the way, in 1986, we had two little ones. We had a four-year-old and a two-year-old on this trip with us. So we went to the first home of the relatives. All the relatives came, and they fed us a meal. Then we went to the second house. All the relatives came there, and they fed us a meal. (laughs) We went to the third house. All the relatives came there, and they fed us a meal. By that time, the kids had had it, and we were stuffed. (laughs) And so we just felt like we had to leave to go have the kids have a nap and rest and so forth. As we were driving out of town, the other relatives that we did not visit were chasing after us, enraged, and making obscene gestures at us. Why is that? See, because in that kind of culture, it was a great honor to have the American relatives in your home. But if they did not come to your home, you were shamed. And that you were shamed before the entire community. So I hope that gives you a glimpse behind this honor, shame-based culture because that's what's at work here in this parable. You need to first know the audience in the beginning of the chapter 15 of Luke. It says, now all the tax collectors and the sinners, those who were religiously impure, who weren't following all the laws, were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, and then he went on to two parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and in the same context, the parable of the two lost sons. So in the audience is primarily the Pharisees and scribes. You've got to keep that in mind as we go through this parable because the parable is really being told to them. It's about them. It's trying to communicate who God is to them. Because these were people that were convinced that godliness is about following rules. Those who don't follow rules should be excluded. And they were appalled at a rabbi who would gather around him people who weren't following the rules. Who would treat them nicely. So Jesus tells this parable. It begins this way. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Now, what you need to understand is in that kind of culture, what the son was saying is this Father, I consider you to be completely dead to me. It's as if you've already died. I want my inheritance now instead of waiting till you do die. I want it now because you are dead to me. This was a terrible thing to do in that culture. Kenneth Bailey, who grew up in the Middle East, has written a lot about this parable and others, says this. For over 15 years, I have been asking people of all walks of life, from Morocco to India and from Turkey to the Sudan, about the implications of a son's request for his inheritance while the father is still living. The answer has almost always been emphatically the same. As I have noted elsewhere, the conversation goes as follows. Has anyone ever made such a request in your village? Never. Could anyone ever make such a request? Impossible. If anyone ever did, what would happen? His father would beat him, of course. Why? Because this request means he wants his father to die. And to do so as the son is to say, is to bring terrible shame on the father. And not only that, but to bring shame on the entire community. And consider the Jewish law, Deuteronomy, chapter 21, verse 18 and following. It says this, If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them, Then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. They shall say to the elders of his city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst and all Israel will hear of it and fear. Think of that Jewish law. It's reflecting the culture, right? Honor, dishonor. Because the son has dishonored not only the parents, but the entire community, then the entire community is to be involved in putting him to death. Now the Jews, in Jesus' time, I don't know that they were actually putting it. They didn't have the right to put a son to death, but that was their understanding of what was right. This son had shamed his father and the village terribly by requesting his inheritance. He actually commands the father, give me my share of the inheritance now. And the proper thing would be the, for the father to beat him and drive him out of the community forever. He should reject him and perhaps even have him stoned. But notice what he does at the end of verse 12. So he divided his wealth among them, between them. The word for wealth there is life. He divided his actual life among them. This is what he had to live on. This was, this was his until he died and got divided up, and yet he divided it between both of his sons, which meant the older son, as the firstborn, would get two-thirds of his inheritance, and the younger son would get one-third. He divides it up, which would have been unheard of in that culture. The village would be saying, what? Why didn't you drive out the son? What are you doing here? It was a shameful thing for him to actually follow through and do what the son asked. It meant that the father and the older son now had to live off the two-thirds that was left for themselves. Now, why would the father do that in this parable? Why would he give the son what he asked for? I think Jesus is trying to teach us something about our Heavenly Father. That he will not force us to do what's right. And so often our Heavenly Father, if we demand something we think we should have or we need to be happy and fulfilled, he often will give it to us and let us go our own way. Because the Heavenly Father knows What needs to happen is a changed heart, and a changed heart doesn't come from control. It comes from brokenness. And he knew the son had to reach the end of himself, just like for us. We so often have to reach the end of ourselves before our hearts can truly be changed. So in verse 13 it says, Not too many days later the younger son gathered everything together, sold the lands or whatever he had to do in the village. It says he did it quickly. I think he did it quickly because the whole village would be angry at him for dishonoring his father and dishonoring the rules and the regulations of the whole village. They would be driving him out of town. So quickly he sold what he could, took his money, driven by desire, he leaves. As Tim Keller says in his book, there are two ways that we as human beings try to get happiness and fulfillment. One is by what he calls self-discovery. I, I need to, to experience the world. I need to live by who I am. I need to live by my desires. I, I've got to do this because it's the only way I can really be happy. The other way that Tim Keller says, that we try to find happiness fulfillment is moral conformity. One's reflected in the younger son, and the next week we'll look at the older son. This son thinks, I'll be happy if I discover who I really am and if I live by my desires. Now, that's always been part of the human drive for happiness, but it seems to be reflected even more in today's culture because our culture is saying that over and over, isn't it? And the young people are being told over and over again, you got to discover life. You've got to experience the fullness of it. If you really want to find happiness and fulfillment, it's a lie, but that's what they're being told over and over again. And so young people are saying in droves, if I can't find that in the church, Then I'll go elsewhere. It's foolish, but that's what many are doing. Well, in verse 14 and following, you see the sun finally hits bottom. It doesn't satisfy. Self-discovery does not bring about life. When he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now he's hitting bottom. And think about, again, with the Pharisees who are listening to this parable that Jesus is telling, what they would think. Here's the son. Now he's not only rebelled against his father, but he's gone and attached himself to a goy, a Gentile. And not only has he attached himself, but now he's feeding swine for a job, the most despicable of animals to a Jew. I think a Pharisee would have been saying, Ha, he's getting what he deserves. And he is so utterly unclean, he is way beyond hope. That would have been the attitude of the Pharisees, the separatists. He is broken. Then it says, verse 16, He would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. The pods, there were two kind of pods in those days. One people could eat, but the other they fed to pigs and other things. They were totally non-nourishing, and he couldn't even eat those. No one was giving him food, and he is starving to death, literally. He has finally hit bottom. And I think in the Jewish mind, they're thinking, ha, he deserves everything he's getting. But then the story shifts, and now we begin to see the restoration of the sun. We've seen the descent of the sun, Now we see the restoration of the son. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, literally when he came to himself, when he basically woke up and he said, Whoa, what in the world am I doing here? How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and arise. Go to my father. Now think for a minute about his statement there as he's speaking to himself. He wakes up. He's like, man, I am starving to death. I'm going to go back to dad. But what's his motivation to go back to dad? It's to get food, right? I mean, he's not going because, boy, I really blew it. I miss dad so much. I want to go back and be with him. No, he's saying, I'm starving. I know no other way to get food. Even his hired men have plenty of food. I'm going to go back and maybe I can get some food from him. He's desperate enough that he's willing to go back and face the shame of the entire village and maybe the shame from his own family to get food because he knows his father will at least provide for him a job, perhaps. So he makes up a speech. Now, you and I have all done that, right? You know you're going to have a hard conversation, so you rehearse it ahead of time. You figure out exactly what you're going to say, and he says... Okay, I'll, I'll get up, I'll go to my father, and I'll say to him, "Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men." Notice that there's three parts to his speech. Three parts. Number one, I'm a sinner. I admit it, Dad, I'm a sinner. Two: I know I'm not worthy to be called your son. I blew it. I've lost my sonship. I do not deserve to be part of the family anymore. Part three is, so here's how I'm going to make it up. Here's how I'm going to pay pay back. I want to be a hired man. Now notice a hired man is different than a slave. A slave would live in the home, be under the father's care, live there, etc. But a hired man simply comes, works during the day, gets paid and leaves and sleeps somewhere else. That may have been part of the son's ploy to kind of stay away from the shame he felt that he was sure the father would put on him. But notice, uh, ask yourself, is this true repentance? What's his motivation? He wants food, and so he says the right words, but is it true repentance? Well, hmm. it's a good first step. Let's say that. He's like most of us when we sin, isn't he? We sin and we think, okay, uh, how am I going to get right with God? I, maybe I've lost God's blessing. I don't feel like he's, you know, I don't feel close to him anymore. Or I don't, uh, you know, he's not blessing me or whatever. So, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll say, yeah, I'm a sinner, God. I admit it. I'm not worthy to be called your son or daughter. And here's how I will make it up to you. Here's how I will provide payback. God, I'll I'll pray more. I'll go to church every week. I'll really try harder to be good. I'll never sin in that way again. We come with our speech and we try to bargain with God. Here's what I'll do to make it up to you. Notice what we're doing. We're trying to deal with our own sin ourselves. We're trying to pay for it ourselves. What is the son's view of God at this point? What is our view of God when we are in that position? Well, ultimately, it's he's the source of blessing. I better be right with him so that I can get what I want in life, a happy life. Ultimately, what we tend to want is God's blessing rather than God himself, right? That's true of every one of us at times. Even though our theology says grace is free, we could probably articulate that. If I sin, his grace is completely free through the cross. But the way we live practically is I need to make it up to God. I need to pay for it myself like the son. So we tell God what we're going to do to make it up. Deep down, we believe that we have to pay for our sin. So, he makes up the speech. He's ready to come back now. He got up, came to his father. Okay? Got his speech in hand. But notice what happens. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, ran, embraced him, and kissed him. Notice all the action verbs of this father while he was still a long way off, he saw him. He ran. He had compassion on him. He embraced him and he kissed him. Now you need to think about, again, this honor-based society. If that son were to walk through the gates of the city, this village, and be recognized by other people, what would happen? The villagers would gather together and run him out of town because he had shamed the entire community. But the father's watching. And as he sees his son come, he runs, which again in that culture is completely undignified. And uh, an older gentleman does not run. He walks with dignity everywhere. But he ran. And he grabbed the son before he could even say his speech and literally fell on his neck and kissed him. This dirty, smelly mess of a man, he embraces him, holds him, loves him. This whole act of the father is a shameful act in the Middle East. The father would never do that. You always remain dignified. But it says that he did all this. In essence, what the father is doing is taking the shame of the village on himself so that it will not have to fall on the son. Because the father will be shamed by the village for doing this and allowing the son back and treating him so nicely. This was against the code of the entire village. I like the painting of Rembrandt, and I would like you to see it. Here it is. Return of the Prodigal Son, because it, it pictures this moment. It's his interpretation of this moment. But you see the father here embracing the filthy son. And what's powerful about it, a number of things, but one of the things you notice is that the father looks blind. Rembrandt painted him that way, I believe, because he wants us to see God as somebody who does not look at the mess we've made of our lives. But instead, the Father embraces him and he covers him. It's as if his whole body and his cloak is covering the Son, covering and protecting him from the shame of the others around him, including the elder brother here and the others who are looking with disgust on what the Father is doing and on the Son. In essence, the father is taking the shame that the son deserves. Forgiveness is not tolerance. I don't really care about what you did. It's no big deal. No, forgiveness is always costly. Somebody pays the price. And the father is taking it on himself. Now notice what happens next. The son finally begins a speech. He says to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He starts the speech. Remember, there's three parts. How many does he get through? Only the first two. I've sinned. <laughs> yes, I've sinned. Father says, him, I'm not worthy to be called your son. That's true. But when he gets to here's how I'm going to make it up to you, the father cuts him off. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring out the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine, yes, my son, was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to party. (laughs) They had a party. He's not worthy to be a son. And in fact, he's not even looking to be re- restored as a son, is he? He just wants to get some food and knows he, maybe he can get it from his father. But what does his father do? Bypasses all that and embraces him and welcomes him back into the family as a son. But not only just a son, but as a privileged Son, who receives the father's own robe, that would be the best robe, the father's ring, signet ring, by which he made business dealings, that would have been the ring that he gave, and put sandals on him. And though the son is not expecting it, though he does not deserve it, he welcomes him back and gives him a place of privileged position in the family. This is miraculous. This is unheard of. This is a prodigal God. extravagantly wasteful. He kills the fatted calf. Typically a fatted calf would feed about a hundred. He's throwing a party and he's inviting all the village. Now whether they'll come or not, we don't know. Because the father has shamed them by welcoming this son back. The son felt like his sins had to be dealt with to be even to receive from food. But the father recognizes what is most important to him is a restored relationship as sonship. When we come to the father, so often we want God to bless us and we know we don't deserve to be his son or daughter and so we feel shame and and he welcomes us back and says, the door is open, I've paid the penalty, come back to me because what's most important to God is that we be restored to relationship with him. And so he says, come back. The door is open. And whenever we come back, God throws a party. He does. God loves parties. And he loves having us come back. Whether we've done it all right or not, whether we're repentant in the right way or not, if we come back, he welcomes us and throws a party. So what do we learn from this parable? Well, for one, we all make the mistake of trying to find life in other things besides God. This journey of self-discovery, I like the way Henry Nouwen in his book describes that. In his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, he says this, Addiction might be the best word to explain the lostness that so deeply permeates contemporary society. Our addictions make us cling to what the world proclaims as the keys to self-fulfillment. Accumulation of wealth and power, attainment of status and admiration, lavish consumption of food and drink, and sexual gratification without distinguishing between lust and love. These addictions create expectations that cannot but fail to satisfy our deepest needs. Secondly, we learn from this first part of the parable is that we all think we have to earn God's forgiveness his blessing, but he shocks us by bearing the shame and the penalty himself and says, the door's open. Come directly to me. The kingdom is here. Jesus has died and risen again. There's no penalty to be paid anymore. We also learn from this parable that God is a prodigal God. He is extravagantly wasteful in his love way beyond anything we experience in life here. And I think this raises a question, this parable, for us as well. And that is, how do we treat the younger sons in our lives? Those who have made a mess of their lives. Are we like Pharisees who hold them at a distance? (laughs) You need to clean up your act before we are going to welcome you back. You better prove to me that you really are repentant. Or when they come back, do we throw a party and trust that God will clean them up (laughs) over time? But do we welcome them back? Falling on their necks, kissing them, and throwing a party. We have a practical opportunity to do that as a body. Some of you, not all of you, there's a number of new people here, but some of you know Joyce Westland, we are going to throw a party to welcome her back. Around 15 years ago, we as a church experienced deep betrayal and hurt when it was discovered that Joyce Westland, who worked in our Christian school and was a leader here in the church, had been caught in sin. It has been a brutal period in her life since then. But God has done a good work in her, and I want to read some of her words. Before I knew what had happened, I found I did not have time to pray or time to spend in God's Word. That is when things began to fall apart. I fell into sin, and I became caught up in it and could not break away. I tried. I really did. But I kept going back and back until years had passed. My life was becoming a living hell. I was divided against myself. I wanted to serve Christ, but I could not escape the bondage of this other matter, master. But one day it did come to an abrupt end. I was found out. My sin was made public. I wanted to run and hide. I begged God to please take me home. I wanted to escape the horrible pain I knew I would face. I identified completely with the psalmist when he said, I'm laid low in the dust. My soul is weary with sorrow. I am lowly and despised, O Lord. Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for I did not obey your laws. Though life seemed hardly worth living, God began working in me and I devoured the scriptures, sitting in a chair at home, reading hour upon hour. With the help of two counselors, a loving husband and children, and a few friends who refused to let me go, I slowly began to realize that God was restoring me to himself. God has restored her relationship with him and with her husband, they have a good marriage, and with her children. And now it's time to restore Joyce to us. Some of you have carried the pain of that betrayal for these 15 years. Now it's time to let it go. God has forgiven Joyce, and as his children, we must as well. So in two weeks... Sunday the 11th at 1215, I invite all of you, even those who don't know Joyce, to a reconciliation party, to a welcome back party in the large classroom with Phil and Joyce. For those of you who may be struggling with this or want to talk more about it, you have things to work through, there's a couple things you can do. Call one of the elders or we will have a meeting in the large classroom next week, July 4th. Now, you may not be here, so... If you have a concern, talk to one of the elders before July 11th. But on July 11th, we're going to have a welcome home party for Joyce and for Phil. Well, I'm going to pray, and then we are going to take communion together to celebrate the incredible, amazing love of the Father. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this parable that so clearly reveals our hearts and reveals the incredible love that you have for us, the prodigal love, the extravagantly wasteful love, the countercultural love. And Lord, as we now turn to take communion together, we take communion now as just a foretaste of the great feast we will have in your presence. We celebrate you. We thank you for your extravagant love as we take communion together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sin must be paid for. It's true. But the amazing truth of the gospel is that God himself paid the penalty. He took the shame on himself. And so communion reminds us that Jesus' death is our path to life and fulfillment. And that he just simply wants us to come to him And he throws a party and the Lord's Supper is meant to be a foretaste of the party that's to come when we go to be with him. And what a day that will be. So as we pass the bread, I encourage you to let this time be a meditation. And I want you to imagine yourself coming to God with all your explanations and what you're going to do to pay for your own sin. And imagine him, before you can even say it, grabbing you, falling on your neck, embracing you and kissing you, and welcoming you home as his son or daughter. Let's give thanks for the bread, Lord. We confess to you that too often we try To make up for our own sin. We are sinners. And we are not worthy to be called your sons and daughters. And yet, through the cross, all that's washed away and you welcome us back. And so with praise and thanksgiving in our hearts, we thank you for this bread that represents your body given for us. Pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Christ's body. Given for you. And as the cup is being passed, let this be a time of just praise for how great God is and how great His love is for you. Simply enjoy being with Him. Let's pray, Lord, thank you for how great you are. How great is your love. We celebrate you and help us, Lord, please to know you better for who you really are. Pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Christ's blood shed
0: for you.